Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamrai. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab, a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab, as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In episode three, I'm talking to Critical Design Lab artist-in-residence Kevin Gotkin about practices of what he calls Crip Nightlife and accessible DJing which he's developing as part of the DIY club scene in New York City. Kevin's thinking about DJing as both art and design practice, encompassing archival collection and the curation of experiences. We get way more into his biography in the interview. I'm excited to be talking to Kevin Gotkin today. Kevin is the artist in residence for the Critical Design Lab, which houses the Contra podcast. And he's also an academic activist and artist. Um, And we're going to be talking to Kevin today about his accessible DJing practice. Hi, Kevin. Hello. (laughs) It's so great to have you. It is so great to talk to you. I thought that we could just uh, start out by talking about um, how you situate yourself professionally, what it means to you to be an academic, an activist, and an artist, and how media comes into that for you. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, right now, uh, talking in mid-February 2018, I am in the last legs of my dissertation. Um, and I'm also teaching adjuncting at NYU, um, also doing some, uh, some advocacy, some activism in New York, um, and, uh, and getting into DJing, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So I have a, lo- a lot of things going on. I think that's kind of indicative of like late stage PhD candidates like you (laughs) like where we need to like find you know ways to work and support ourselves after our funding from our programs is done um but we're also like for me the the like latter stages of my dissertation were really like a moment of like soul searching you know it's like really challenging um and so you're kind of wondering like what like what is the what am I going to tap into here that's going to drive me 
you know, um, through this, this, um, obstacle course of the dissertation, but also like, what am I, like, who am I, you know, as a, um, as a, as a professional. Um, and so, yeah, so for me, like I, I try to just connect as much as possible, like seeing, um, what's, what I'm doing in my writing and research, um, as connected to things that I'm doing, you know, in activist spaces and as an activist and connecting that to an artistic practice, like th- it's that kind of connection that then fuels me, drives me forward. And you know, yeah, my, my um, field is media studies and, you know, in the field, we often make that term like media so large that you could just drive a truck through it. Like everything is media. <laughs> um, but it, but that expansive move is really helpful for me because it, you know, I do see forms of mediation everywhere. It's a, it's a really inspiring, um, way to think about what I'm doing at every moment. Um, so, so yeah, like media are the things that I write about, but also the forms that I'm trying to use. And, and you know, they relate to questions of genre and dis- uh, discipline and all these things that, um, that I'm trying to think through in the presence of disability. Great. Um, I think something that I find so interesting about your work is um, that you not only theorize about and study media historically, but you also produce a lot of media. And so it's been interesting to see some of the ways that your dissertation research kind of crosses over um, into different kinds of critical making practices. And I wonder if you could just um, really quickly give us a blurb about what your research is about um, and then tell us some of the media projects that you've done. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is what media studies offers, you know, like the capacity to actually make media and to fix your thinking in um, in, you know, channels of communication beyond the traditional forms like the, you know, the paper, the written article. Um, So in my dissertation research, I have been trying to figure out how how American ableism maintains itself uh, and specifically over the um, the latter t- uh, 20th century um, and uh, you know there's a lot of ways that we could think about media as propagating uh, ableist representations um, but what I was kind of fo- what I focus on is the way that very mundane forms of American civic life actually enshrine notions about ability and disability in um, kind of ritual forms. So I'm thinking about something that might be um, as seemingly politically neutral as a um, as a walkathon or a 5K race for a cure, um, which is, you know, we see these kind of dot the community calendar all over the U.S. Um, every weekend. And, um, and I've been thinking about how it is that the thon as a suffix for a lot of things like bikeathons, haircutathons, walkathons, um, how that came to be, and, it, and it's it's pretty um, it's a pretty stunning history in the um, in the last few decades of the 20th century, where the marathon itself, the long distance running marathon, booms um, at the same time that the walkathons and the telethon and danceathons all emerge, um, and so I've been thinking about the thon as an engine of American ableism um, because it models a form of citizenship, of civic engagement that is predicated on able-bodiedness as a, as a, um, you know, a superior category and uses disability as a um, supposedly stable object of pity. Um, so, so in relation to that 
writing that I've been doing, the research that I've been doing about fawns of all kinds, I've been also trying to imagine what would it mean to, um, to center a totally different set of values? What if we cared about care and interdependence and, uh, and collective well-being um, and structures of support that uh, really are kind of vanquished by the race form or by marathons in general. So there's um, a, a kind of a performance art piece that I've been trying to uh, perfect, which is um, which I call races for right now. And um, they might really not even be races because the race itself, uh, you know, usually prizes an individual who comes out on top and there's like clear demarcation of of like success and metrics of success but i kind of ask what would it mean for us all like a collective to win something <laughs> and sure. how is that how could that be just as important or more important than an individual's um success um and and so uh so that's one set of things that that's one kind of thing that's emerged from my dissertation research yeah so let's talk about uh the disability arts nyc organization that you started yeah yeah so um in the fall of 2016 right when i was moving to new york to start teaching um about disability artistry at nyu um i teamed up with someone who had been um a real important figure in my reading life simi linton who has um, written a number of books that a lot of folks, you know, cite as foundational to disability studies and um, and lays out, you know, what disability studies is as a field. And so um, we connected um, right at a time when um, Simi was um, getting more involved with city level cultural policy. She had been tapped to be on an advisory board um, and was noticing that the city, um, uh, the Department of Cultural Affairs, which is tasked with you know, setting cultural policy in addition to funding a ton of arts organizations. Um, she was noticing that they, w you know, wanted and were saying that they were committed to disability equity, but they weren't really doing much. Um, so we formed, at, you know, at the beginning, kind of like a watchdog group. <laughs> we were, <laughs> I've learned so much about um, about activism from Simi, you know, just the, the way we write uh, memos <laughs> to city, you know, agencies and, um, and, and the way we um, kind of, strategically consult and maybe refuse consultations because that's often how disability equity is incorporated into organizations. Let's hire a consultant. Like we don't know anything about this, but consultations can so often be co-opted as I've been learning. And so, so we have been trying to get the city to um, really commit to disability equity. How do you recognize disability artistry as its own field? How do you support disabled artists um, in their professionalization and in their success? Um, and, um, and then how do you make the whole arts and culture landscape equitable? Um, and um, so we've been doing a lot of city level policy advocacy. We've been training um, kind of cohorts of activists. Um, we've been doing some public programming. Most recently at the Whitney Museum, we programmed um, a night in relation to their protest art show that's up right now. Um, 
and um, and we've been trying to get artists to to meet each other. You know, there's so often um, disabled artists have never taken a course in disability artistry, have never taken a course in disability studies, um, and don't know other disabled artists. Um, so we're trying to get. There's a lot of movement around disability and dance in New York. We're trying to connect all kinds of folks there, and then. Um, introduce the dancers to visual artists and to musicians and actors and um, all kinds of artists and, and really build um, a community of disabled artists. Yeah, that's so great. Um, it really, it seems like it relates to a number of issues that we talk about around disability and design and material production, like kind of, there's the political economy of it um, in terms of like, who are the organizations and how do they get funding? And then also the kind of, um, what are the structural barriers to disabled people um, having community around art and disability art being recognized as kind of like an aesthetic resource. Um, And then it seems like also um, in terms of the way that disability activism informs this, um, it can kind of give us a sense of um, how like art can be uh, a site for disability activism and that disability Mm -hmm. activism is not solely, um, although very importantly it is, like when ADAPT goes to the Capitol building and does direct action, that there are forms of direct action that can also happen within the art world and um, within the design world, for example. So um, I think this is so interesting and um, I would love to hear more about your accessible DJing practice and how it came about in relation to this, what your inspirations were for that. Yeah, totally. It's all kind of wrapped up in here. Um, When we were, we were um, influencing, trying to influence uh, this major document in the city, the city's first ever cultural plan, which is really kind of um, you know, a long-term strategy for how the city was going to support arts and culture. Um, when we were done with that, when the when we had major successes in our advocacy, and um, we sat down with the commissioner of the Department of Cultural Affairs, he was like, "Yeah, you guys really organized." And and the other group that really organized is the nightlife community. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of named the two our two what he thinks of as constituencies as like really strong and, and active and really kind of um, active organizing um, centers in the city. And then I thought about it and I was like, well, what, like, where does that come from? How could we like, are we actually natural allies already? And um, a lot of the nightlife organizing that was happening around the New York City cultural plan was a response to some really troubling dynamics around the country after the ghost ship um, uh, tragedy in Oakland. So there was this artist um, loft, warehouse, venue that um, that caught on fire and it was a, a, a really catastrophic event, one of the largest fire fatalities in over a decade in the US. Um, and in the wake of that, um, a lot of cities use that as an excuse to crack down on artist spaces that they just wanted to, to designate as unsafe. Um, and, you know, artist spaces around the country, I think, you know, were, were mourning and were committing themselves to safety, but they also were very concerned that they were going to come under new forms of scrutiny and discipline and control in the wake of this, um, this fire. And, and many places around the country were shut down. Um, in New York, 
the nightlife organizers like stepped to it like right away and started organizing um, to preserve the autonomy of these cultural spaces and commit themselves to safety in new ways. Um, and that involved them really, really getting involved with some of the same forms of engagement that, that we in the Disability Arts NYC work were doing. Um, so I started thinking that we're actually doing a lot of the same work although sometimes not. So, so you know, the, the nightlife community is, is um, a bastion of equity and diversity work right now. There are amazing DJ collectives and nightlife production collectives putting on parties that are, are just doing incredible work, like really prefigurative, like imagining what does it mean to, to build the world that we want to live in, like right now, like in this club. Um, and so that means, you know, they have uh, new policies about how um, the, a door, a cover charge it happens, right? Like no one turned away for not being able to pay. Um, drink prices, obviously the music. Um, but a lot of um, these parties, uh, especially when they're in um, DIY spaces, also prize their inaccessibility, like mm. how run down the bathroom is and how you have to go up to the roof within these awful stairs and that's part of the kind of like cred and the aesthetic of these DIY spaces. So even though they might be articulating some aspects of accessibility that are radical and wonderful, they're also, um, you know, propping up, uh, you know, insidious forms of ableist, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. community making. So I was thinking, what if I started to make some DJ sets that divine the truth and beauty of disability culture? And then try to, you know, like get booked at some of these parties and go in. And um, as soon as you bring disability into a space, everything transforms, which is one of the most incredible things about disability justice, because the, pol the political commitments happen in making space for all kinds of bodies and minds to share a space. It happens like right now. Um, Can you so, give an example of that? Like, yeah, has this so, happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think a good example is is the DJ as a part of a party like to begin with. Right. Because that, you know, someone being the DJ of a party often assumes right that everyone will have a relationship to that person in the same way. Right. Everyone's going to be listening. That's oddest. That's not how it happens. Right. You might have uh, deaf folks, hard of hearing folks in the party there. The DJ is not going to be like, the, you know, a center of the party for those folks. They're going to be doing different forms of, of socializing mm -hmm. in the club. So, you know, when you when you are thinking about disability in a DJ practice, you realize that you, you can't just play music. Right. You might put together a set that tells a certain kind of story or, or drives towards an idea, which I think some of the best DJs in the city are, do. But then you might invite like a choreographer or a poet to join you in, in, the, at, you know, in the party and, and do some kind of live scribing that also gets access, you know, tries to access that idea. Or you might have a choreographer, you know, doing some work on the dance floor. Um, uh, and, and if you diffuse that kind of artistry, I think, A, it demonstrates the best forms of disability artistry, which is always collaborative, kind of anti-disciplinary. Um, but you also make the party actually accessible in addition to all of the other 
um, really important things to keep in mind with like like physical venue accessibility right is there are like how is there are there ramps for folks who use wheelchairs um, in addition to all of the sensory um, considerations is there a space where you can go and ha have quiet and and just be by yourself different kinds of lighting all of these things um, you know come into consideration uh, when you think about disability and when you're trying when you're putting access at the heart of your organizing and so you know I just think if we if we were to if the disability arts community and the nightlife arts community got together you know and did more of this work like it would be totally transformative and and also partly because you know we live in an era where you know our fed it's just it's um shock after shock of the news headlines right the club is often in moments like this i think a site for transgression and new political formation yeah so totally. i just feel like especially in new york and around the country there's so many variables that are aligning right now to make this a really potent form of artistry and activism and, and so that's kind of, that's my thinking here with accessible DJ practices. So kind of what I'm getting from what you're describing is that DJing is a kind of design practice. Mm -hmm. And it's one that in the way that you are thinking about it is completely enmeshed with all the other aspects of event design and event planning totally. yeah. um, from the building to the sensory experiences to um, kind of allowing like different types of engagement with the space. Um, and so um, I wonder kind of how we could think about or maybe theorize a kind of crip design framework or disability justice design framework um, that's based around cultural production like this and um, not, maybe not just for nightlife but for events in general like how how when we plan events we can think about that planning as a kind of design activity that requires critical attention yeah totally i i just i think this is like the beating heart of you know disability politics right like mm -hmm. how how do we make sure that everyone can share space i mean i'll just run through so many things there's so many things that come to mind because this is really you know this is like the heart of it all but yeah like a design sensibility right will help us map these things out in critical ways and so you know first of all um, I think we have to decenter physical access like like actually sharing co-presence in, in physical space um, because so many disabled people are incarcerated or um, or live in places where accessible um, and affordable uh, public transportation is just not an option. Um, so many people, you know, uh, the home is is where um, is where life is uh, for disabled folks, and not for everybody, but for a large, um, you know, for a lot of people. And that means that you can't insist that like the club coming to the club right. is the way to participate. So virtuality, you know. Um, uh, having ways for folks to, to beam in, right? Like I would love a club that's just like 500 iPads on the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then like, and then you can just like beam in to one of those iPads. And if you're at home, like you're or wherever you are, you know, um, and even there, right, there's limitations to who can access all of that space, but it's a start and it's a way yeah. to model virtuality um, as a really important ethic in, um, in, in accessible organizing. Um, so just to not insisting that everyone come to a place. I mean, that's a really important first principle. Um, but like I said, collaboration, you know, like, 
um, you can't really, I think it's silly to think of like the planners of a party or an event and, um, and the attendees, you know, uh-huh. everyone is sharing the space. Now it's important that some people are compensated for their work, like right. bartenders and, um, you know, and the folks that are, that are actually working the venue. Um, but everyone should have, a, you know, should have access to the planning process. I mean, that's a very important, I think, principle of justice that everyone has access to decision-making processes. So I, you know, would love to, um, to start planning a party by just sitting down with a whole bunch of different kinds of folks and saying like, what do we need? You know, um, that sources some of the, some of the, um, design features in particular, um, lived experience, right? Like some people saying, I really need a space that is super well lit and super quiet you know, and here's, here's why, or I need a space that is, you know, is super loud. I need a space without alcohol. I need space, you know, where it's okay for me to be intoxicated. And, um, from there, you know, you start to just list things, right. That the people who are going to share the space really are going to prize. Um, and with no assumption that that's the only way to organize, right. Because you're hoping that a lot of folks that are not already a part of the, the planning process will come to and become part of it so you have to leave open the possibility that you need to change things up and there's a form for what to do you know when something's not working um but i think consultation you know like um just meeting with the people who are going to be at your party not assuming that there's some hypothetical attendee because often the Mm -hmm. hypothetical attendee is you know is like is hearing is sighted is all these things um, that's just not the case. We need to total, we need to start with our community, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so then, yeah. And then, and then getting into the space, kind of like I just mentioned, there's all kinds of considerations that are, when they're, they're free to actually, like, there's no cost to actually doing it, right? Like just asking folks to do something uh, while they're drinking, if it's going to be triggering to folks who, you know, don't, who are, you know, have trouble with alcohol, let's say. Um, you know, that kind of stuff, like we can do that, like right now, you know, that doesn't really cost much, but some things do cost much. And I, you know, I would love for there to be more funding (laughs) availability for accessible event planners, you know, because getting, um, you know, real time captioning, uh, cart transcription, if you're going to have people speaking or ASL interpreters, um, or audio describers, like all of those folks, um, should be paid. Um, and you know, it's a lot of times people just ask folks who have those skills to do it for free, but it's important for the quality of the access work and for the professionalization of these fields that we pay them. Um, you know, I think that should be something that the city, you know, the, the New York is about to inaugurate a office of nightlife with a mm-hmm. nightlife mayor. You know, I think the, oh, the wow. office of nightlife, yeah, it's amazing. The, the nightlife <laughs> organizers really got a lot of stuff through um, in their organizing practice, which is great. I would love, you know, for that office to um, make available funds to hire ASL interpreters, you know, or hire yeah. access workers in the club. Um, otherwise, it you're asking folks to do it for free or it just isn't there, you know, and, and party planners like have very little understanding from from what I see of what it would actually mean, you know, to hire workers who are specifically tasked with creating access. Um, so we need to talk about that. We can avoid the um, the unfortunate stereotype, right, that disability costs more. If we just put the location for funding in equitable spaces, right, like it should mm-hmm. be the city, it should be the public that funds 
you know, public accessible nightlife. Um, and but I think the philanthropic community could could also do it. You know, um, the, they should recognize that that the spaces that I'm describing are you know bastion of transformation and and new political and artistic forms. And maybe the, you know the philanthropic community could fund these kinds of spaces and this kind of planning. Um, but we need to secure funding for sure. Um, yeah, there's so much more I could say, but I think those are those are just a few of the considerations that that come into focus. Um, something I was thinking about as you were talking is um, kind of the opportunity to uh, do design charrettes around party planning, mm-hmm. and um, and I think about uh, ways that I've used this pedagogically. So. Mm. Um, to teach about universal design and ideas about like, you know, how do you aim for the broadest possible type of accessibility and manage sometimes like conflicting or overlapping or opposite access needs. Like um, I've had my students design an accessible potluck where Mm. we figure out everyone's dietary needs Mm -hmm. and then we figure out like what we can bring that would kind of like meet all of those needs and still have kind of like a diversity of foods or something. And it seems like that's something you could easily do with a community of people. It wouldn't necessarily have that kind of um, sensory stuff around like sound design and stuff, but there would be like taste design and food design. And um, another thing that I do when I teach students about gender is uh, we take the practice of the gender reveal party and Mm -hmm we kind of queer crip it and um and we have an actual gender reveal party um where we come up with a gender that um and we like describe it and imagine its qualities and Mm. then we have a whole party that's about doing similar things that you would do at a gender reveal party or a baby shower like playing games and Mm. eating food and taking pictures and stuff um but we do it all about this like new queer gender whatever they determine it is um and so there's something about the party itself as like a cultural practice that can be hacked and tinkered with um and as you pointed out like once you start to incorporate these kinds of like disability arts practices that already exist into a party space um, all of the rest of the experience kind of like unravels and re coheres around it Um, and so an example of that that i think we've both been to is the dance party at the society for disability studies Mm -hmm. conference have you ever been Mm -hmm. to that yes absolutely yeah what are what are your experiences with that yeah this is like a legendary Mm -hmm. (laughs) party you know in um in uh disability uh culture in the history of disability culture yeah i mean i yeah when i was going to sds um it was it was the highlight of the weekend you know it was the space when you just knew first of all because the the hotel ballroom whenever i'm in a hotel ballroom I just want to just like 
take up all the space. You know what I mean? It's just like, this is a huge <laughs> space, which is like amazing. Maybe I'm in, you know, cause I'm in New York. It's just feels like so liberating. Right. Um, but that's really important for this party because people use space in creative ways that are, that is not possible in a lot of other spaces. Um, so there's like, I mean, there's, it's just like the best there's, there's places to hang out, talk, have a really low key experience, or even have like a really intimate, like interpersonal experience, you know, like have some yeah. of these like career life changing conversations, but then you can just get lost in the middle of the dance floor. You can use your body in whatever way you can be inspired by like whatever thing, you know, and often the music for folks who are accessing the music is, is, um, about disability. So it's like this amazing way for you to have just thought about disability, you know, all weekend long at this conference. And now you're going to like, I don't know, experience it. Right. And like respond to, to it in with your body and with your mind and, um, and you know, and then there's snacks and everyone's hanging out. It's just like, and, and to be the society for disability studies was also one of the spaces where, um, you know, you could be around disabled people the whole weekend in ways that are just not possible in our home cities. You know, it's this real like ritual of togetherness. Um, but I will also say, um, you know, like we had, I think we mentioned earlier, most folks, you know, who are, who I know who are in disability arts or in disability activism have had very little or none, no training, formal, like academic training mm-hmm. in disability studies. So the, the, um, the socioeconomic, um, like barriers to even understanding disability as a cultural vector or as a political category you know i mean there's there's a lot of limitations to who even accesses those profound realizations and so in that way the sds dance was also very white very upper upper middle class it was folks who you know who are have the 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 resources to to get access to disability studies and that's why you know i think the sds dance is such a great model to to go to just like model all kinds of parties you know because then you could go back to communities where those other forms of inclusion and diversity are happening and then use all the beauty of the sds dance to to take it to the next level yeah absolutely um i i feel like the SDS dance in that way is part of kind of the broader milieu of like queer dance parties and other things like fat dance parties. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you are familiar with that kid dance party, but no, it's, um, Oh, it's so amazing. It's, um, it's like a, a dance based exercise class for mm-hmm. fat people mm-hmm. led by fat people. And it's in LA, but they are, also recording it so that like you can do it at home and um and it has all these interesting cultural practices around like you know when you're a fat person and society tells you not to take up space and um so how do you like come into your dancing body and like there are all these like collaborative practices like when you feel awkward people like uh, you say it and then people cheer for you or mm-hmm. like if mm-hmm. you if you take a break or drink some water people like celebrate your self-care mm-hmm. and um, and so it's this idea of kind of like a, a, a counter-cultural space that is also um, like a care space mm-hmm. um, that is also a dance party and um, and yeah I wish I wish that that uh, that kind of thing, especially with um, the disability kind of as a guiding framework, was more prevalent because for so many people too, like nightlife is just 
really inaccessible. It's mm-hmm. like overstimulating. It's economically inaccessible, um, and it seems like there are so many opportunities for using uh, kind of multimodal sensory design to change the norms of wet nightlife. Totally, totally, and be, yeah, and those fo- and folks. It sounds like those folks are articulating principles of access you know already um that can just be coordinated with more you know this is what's so amazing about disability activism is that there's this super big idea about what access is and it it includes so many things and and so there's so many natural allies who are doing that work that you know i would love to you know this is the vision you know to like to link up all these things Mm -hmm. yeah so i wonder if like to just kind of by way of of wrapping up we could talk a little bit more about um the multimodality part of this and like um one thing that you and i have talked about before in the context of the critical design lab is this idea that access isn't just about translation like you don't just like make a sound and then transcribe it and that's the end of it like there's there's actually a lot of meaning that um can be captured creatively in different ways. And so I wonder if you could say, you know, in your DJing practice or um, elsewhere, like what are ways that multimodality can work and um, produce different kinds of access? Yeah, totally. Totally. So, so yeah, like accessible DJing is inherently about collaboration. It's about anti-disciplinarity, you know, like you can't just be a sound artist if you care about disability um but yeah i I think the way that i think about it is um is to tap into the forms of the cultural resources that emerge from disability communities so for example you know if i um uh were to have you know an asl interpreter um uh, let's say now I, I want to say I, it's not a lot of folks think like, oh, we're we're going to you know have a lot of speakers. Let's have an ASL interpreter and we're good. You know, um, like then we'll be folks are often driven by like a checklist. Like, how do I make sure that I'm checking all the boxes? And um, I notice, uh, you know, even spaces that are doing great work around accessibility, um, they'll have an ASL interpreter who's interpreting to nobody because the event itself really hasn't been advertised or marketed Mm -hmm. to the deaf community that would use that access feature so the asl interpreter is kind of like looking to nobody in the crowd but everyone's very happy that there's ans you know and it's kind of like Mm -hmm. well we don't always need asl interpretation right like you need to know who's in the room you need to know who's going to use that and we can't just automatically assume that that's like the best thing to have around and that we're all good as long as long as we have asl So I'm not necessarily, you know, I would much rather have like a choreographer who knows my DJ set, right? Like doing dance work, trying to access an idea that I'm also accessing in my music. Um, But let's say I did have the, maybe I was driven like by a lot of um, maybe spoken word elements that I'm bringing into a DJ set. And I do want to have an interpreter there to, to, um, you know, perform these, these um, textual, these verbal elements. I would love to have a deaf ASL interpreter there. Because, and a lot of folks will hear that and think like, oh, that, that's an impossibility. Um, but deaf ASL interpreters work with the cultural resources from ASL as a language in uh-huh. artful ways that hearing interpreters don't have access to, right? Um, Can you give an example of that? Just yeah, for people who yeah. Know, yeah. 
So, so deaf um, ASL interpreters will often work with a hearing interpreter, kind of a relay partner, um, but they'll be the ones facing the crowd, you know, like really um, doing the, the, the interpretive work, like they're um, the central interpreter. Um, but they, you know, ASL is, is, a, is a language all its own, which means that there are slang terms and and combinations of letter formations of sentences that um that you know can access meaning in really efficient ways when someone who knows and understands the culture can Mm. um can be the one interpreting so hearing interpreters often don't have access to that and you know there's all these viral videos about hearing interpreters who are just like up there with chance the rapper and doing all these amazing things and often the these videos are so viral because it looks amazing to you know hearing audiences but we have no idea if that would actually be understood by the deaf community right um mm-hmm. deaf interpreters are, commu- are are using the resources from the community in order to provide access in a way that's artful that is more efficient better access um and so um you know that's an example i think of this this kind of multi-modality that that really uses disability as an engine for for accessibility so it's not just about overlaying some access feature it's about tapping into some you know some generator of of brilliance um, that is sourced from an impairment or from disability Mm -hmm. um, that can then kind of expand you know worlds um, and and just open open things up yeah, it seems like, you know, in, in every way, this goes back to kind of ideas like nothing about us without us and mm-hmm. really starting from disability culture um, yeah. rather than from a kind of rehabilitation model that says, like, you know, here's the non-disabled stuff. We're going to translate it into something that disabled people can access. And like, um, you know, if you do it kind of the other way around, it actually changes the aesthetics of it Mm -hmm. and that's something that we don't really talk about very often when we're talking about like image descriptions and you know like things that um often act as like ameliorations of of barriers rather Mm -hmm. than uh operating as their own art forms yeah totally totally and yeah it's 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 a pervasive way of thinking about um uh you know how to bring disability into spaces you know there's this idea that like all the speeches at the event will just they just need to be made accessible and if you had disabled people you know like uh, as on the speaker line roster and and um, involved in the planning of the event like nothing just stays stable and needs to be made accessible it's it's inspired and it grows from disability itself and um yeah so so i i I just think this is the this is what design and disability is like it's like the best of design and disability you know is making disability the engine for for genius and you know just like one thing i would add as a caveat is that um you know even like amongst ourselves, disabled people, we still learn from each other about how to create access together. And sometimes like, you know, like, uh, so I'm part of a disability justice collective here in Nashville where um, the leadership, like we all have very different disabilities and identities. And so, you know, sometimes like we actually create barriers for each other too. Mm -hmm. And, but because we have this framework that's like, all right, we um, 
we like are so used to engaging with the material world and figuring out how to make it work for us that we could kind of like guide each other through it and that becomes a community building practice Mm -hmm. um even though like we don't actually know what everyone else needs all the time and sometimes we assume we do and it's not the right thing so um there's there's a kind of like epistemological thing in that i think that's really relevant to design thinking too in the way that traditionally in design thinking there's this kind of like non-disabled designer who has empathy for the disabled people Mm -hmm. and learns from them about their needs and like it's like no actually like we're all learning from each other all the time time. and Yeah. yeah there's no uh kind of like stable like uh disability knowledge or content that's also always changing and we're growing together in that way yeah and 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 just to add to that the the there's like a predictive um drive in a lot of design work you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like we'll get better at accommodating if we can predict it which means we should map it and we should have protocols and those things should really like you know there's like that's like often in design thinking Mm -hmm. discourse like the way that design helps is by making prediction more available when actually you know prediction needs to be totally decentered also because i mean from my experience in a neurodivergent and a mad body um i also don't know what i need at any moment you know my experience Mm -hmm. of my own mental illness is often sometimes that i can't figure out what is acting on me at a, at a particular moment. Like, I don't know why I'm reacting to something. Um, but I think for me, having a space where di- um, disability design is the center of like a space would help me, you know, kind of like sort through things, right? Or not, if that's not even something that I need, right? Just kind of living in the, in the uncertainty and the, um, you know, w- remaining safe is important, but, but actually relishing the unpredictability of an experience, you know? Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I think decentering prediction as a, as a uh, virtue of design is really important. And, and as you're saying, like making sure that the capacity for us to be teaching each other, it's kind of a pedagogical heart of design, you know, which totally. means it always changes. You never know. Um, that's, that's really, really key, I think, to everything we're saying here. Yeah, something that you said made me think about um, when you said the, tr- the word protocol, um, how the accessibility checklist has been this very attempted to be an objective protocol mm-hmm. that is very predictive mm-hmm. and it's all about kind of like taking particular forms of knowledge and saying these are the things that people will likely need mm-hmm. and you know at the bare minimum we should do these things and um, I, I think some of the work that we've been doing in the critical design lab together and with other participants is saying like how do we create protocols design protocols for unpredictability mm-hmm. or unknowability mm-hmm. um, and what are the paths that that will take us on and what new things do we produce um, as a result of that mm-hmm. so um, that's like an interesting thing for, just for me to think about uh, in terms of like counter protocols and um, and how to like give up on the need to know exactly like what everyone's going to need all yeah. the time which is also an important starting point for access it's just not the only one yeah yeah so it makes me think that this episode should be called like contra prediction or contra certainty yeah. uh, or something you know because that's uh-huh. really that is really i think what this is driving at it also is the for me it's a it's a political 
and spiritual <laughs> dimension of doing disability work, you know, is exactly what you're describing, that the unknowability um, and the unpredictability is not dangerous, is not necessarily risky. It's actually at the heart of, of how we do it right. And as soon as we feel like we have a checklist that we can replicate perfectly across all kinds of spaces and times is the time that you need to revisit it, you know, because, because it it will not remain stable. And this is the, this is what disability does in all spaces. It challenges, um, uh, the protocols at work. And, And if you center that, then it will reinvent protocols, you know, endlessly and, um, and teach you new things all the time. Yeah, you know, with um, with the mapping access project, this is something that comes up a lot because people contact me and they say, give me your survey. I want to mm. survey my campus. And like, you know, the whole point of the project is to destabilize the survey protocol mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. invite people into the process of figuring out the means of production for mm. those protocols. And then... Um, and troubling them all along the way. And so it's not to uh, just like create a, a standardized checklist that everyone can use. Like even though you can create an unstable protocol and then use it to study certain things and then destabilize it again and study certain things. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I like this idea of, um, of kind of the unknowability as the basis of like crypt protocols yeah, maybe yeah. Um, maybe the episode could even be called contra protocol mm, yeah totally yeah totally yeah well um kevin this has been wonderful i love <laughs> learning from you and hearing about all the things that you're excited about and working on well thank you for and this is i mean just being in in conversation with you has been one of the best things about my professional life, really. Um, and, uh, and so it's just so amazing that we're doing this stuff. And, and uh, I think we're, you know, I think we're perceiving something really, really profound here. And uh, I'm so excited to be a part of that. So thank you for, for tapping me. Uh, and I'm super excited about what's to come. Yeah, great. Thank you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Mang, Jara Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.